Chapter 14 of St. Charles Borromeo, A Sketch of the Reforming Cardinal by Louise M. Stackpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter 14 The Famine of Milan, The Battle of Lepanto. Charity must be boundless, so also must almsgiving, Charles Borromeo said on several occasions, and he proved that he was not one of those who say, but do not. Rather, his deeds outran his words, as he showed when, in 1570, a terrible famine ravaged Milan. His charity and almsgiving were indeed boundless. For more than three months he fed nearly four thousand people, at his own expense, until he had not a penny left, and had to implore the well-off members of his flock to come to the aid of the starving poor. They did so with generous munificence, and their charity was rewarded. The pressing dangers passed happily away and Lombardy was saved from the devastating effects caused not only by the scarcity of food, but the greater danger that arose from the severe cold and from the after-effects of unprecedented snowstorms. The snow lay in places eight feet deep, and the imminent peril was that, when it melted, the rush of water would carry away entire villages and destroy the grain that had been sown. In this extremity Charles had recourse to prayer and fasting, exhorting his flock to unite with him in supplication to Almighty God their prayers were heard. A balmy wind from the south slowly and gently melted the snow. Not only was no harm done, but never had the Milanese gathered in so plentiful and rich a harvest as in the succeeding autumn. Charles recommended the farmers to cultivate Indian corn, as it was likely to be of great use in case of another famine. The generous Milanese called it Carlone, in compliment to their generous and prudent archbishop, and in Lombardy it is called by that name at the present day. Charles resumed his pastoral visits, but with difficulty, for his superb constitution was at last giving way. He had overtaxed his strength for years, but he would not rest, and early in 1571 he once more set out to visit the Catholic cantons of Switzerland. He was, as we have seen, protector of these cantons, and had previously visited them at considerable risk, for he had to travel through wild and desolate districts, among mountaineers who were barely civilized. Once, when riding across the mountains, his path lay along a narrow ledge, with a deep ravine on one side and a perpendicular wall on the other. His mule slipped and fell upon him. His companions thought he was disabled or dead, but he was quite unhurt. On another occasion, on the borders of Valtelline, he had to cross a swollen torrent. A peasant offered to carry him over, but in midstream let him fall and then ran off leaving the cardinal in his long robes, struggling in the midst of a deep and dangerous mountain torrent. Once again his life was miraculously preserved. He had to walk a couple of miles before he met anyone, and at last, when he succeeded in getting shelter, his forest carols to order a search to be made for the man who had so basely left him to drown. No sooner was this individual brought to him than he heaped coals of fire upon his head, giving him money and treating him with the greatest kindness and consideration. When thus traveling through his diocese, he always stopped at the priest's house. In some of the more remote hamlets, this was often a miserable cottage, with accommodations for only one person. The cardinal invariably slept on a table, giving the only available bed to his companion, and he partook, as a rule, of merely a little milk and chestnuts, in order that his companion and the priest might enjoy a more plentiful meal. Yet in the remotest districts he insisted that the outward ceremonial should be strictly observed. He always had the Episcopal cross solemnly borne before him when he entered a church to celebrate the Holy Sacrifice, 
and he invariably wore the mitre and other insignia of his high position. His great happiness was to give Holy Communion himself, for he had a very special devotion to the Blessed Eucharist. He was surprised and horrified to find it treated with carelessness and neglect in many of the remote parishes, where ignorant priests were not only neglectful of their churches, but paid scant reverence to the Blessed Sacrament. In an incredibly short time, he changed this sad state of affairs. He impressed upon his priests the absolute necessity of leading good and virtuous lives, of caring for their people and for their churches, and strictly forbade them to allow parents and guardians to send their little ones to heretical schools. He also insisted on the banishment of heretics from the Catholic cantons, telling the pastors and the civil authorities that they on no pretext should allow a heretic into their parishes. He endeavored to arrest the progress of heresy by sending holy and learned priests to these mountainous regions, and for this purpose he founded the Swiss College at Milan. For throughout Switzerland the authorities only allowed ecclesiastics of their own nationality to officiate or even to enter their country. Consequently, it was absolutely necessary that these men should be well trained. In the Swiss college they received this training, and in due time went back to their own country, ready and willing to devote their talents and their lives to the instruction and edification of their parishioners. In 1571, after a short stay in Switzerland, Charles was compelled through ill health to return to Milan, and soon had to go to Varello for a change of air. On July 24, 1571, he wrote to Blessed Sully, Bishop of Olaria, I was obliged to spend Whit Sunday in bed, as I had an attack of malignant fever. I am a little better, but every three days I have a fresh paroxysm. Already I have suffered from nine of these violent attacks. I left Milan a few days ago, hoping a change would improve my health. So I came to this remote part of my diocese. It is surrounded by hills, and the air is splendidly invigorating. I have been now for six days taking a rest at Varallo. The mysteries of our redemption are represented in several little chapels here, and it has been a great source of interest to me to meditate on them. Doing so has much refreshed me. After a short stay at this mountain village, though still very feeble, he endeavored to resume his pastoral visitations. At Masila, he heard of the sudden death of the Duke of Albuquerque. The sad news grieved him deeply, for he liked and esteemed the governor, Notwithstanding the slight interruption of their friendly intercourse at the time of their trouble with the canons of Santa Maria della Scala, and he hastened back to Milan to reform the last rites of the church for the deceased, and to console the sorrowing widow and orphans. During this eventful year, all Christendom had watched with wild excitement, not unmixed with terror, the conflict between the Venetians and the Turks. In the previous year, the latter had invaded and conquered Cyprus, and had treated their unfortunate captives with revolting cruelty. When St. Pius V heard of their atrocious deeds, he wept bitter tears, and after long hours spent in prayer and penance, he redoubled his efforts to persuade the Christian princes to come to the aid of the Venetian Republic in their war against the infidel. He succeeded. Under the command of Don John of Austria, the allied fleets of Spain, Genoa, the Holy See, and Venice commanded respectively by Sebastiano Venier of Genoa, Andre Doria of Venice, and the Roman prince Marc Antonio Colonna, won the famous Battle of Lepanto on October 7, 1571, the Feast of the Holy Rosary. It was one of the most decisive victories of the world, for it checked forever the Mohammedan power in the Gulf of Corinth. We can fancy how rejoiced Charles was when he heard the glad tidings. Not only, like all the rest of Christendom, 
did his soul overflow with thanksgiving and gratitude to almighty god for the signal success of the allied fleets but naturally his heart was stirred in quite a special way with joyous pride in the triumphal return to the eternal city of the conqueror mark antonio colonna the father-in-law of his dearest sister anna he was even more pleased when he learned of the humble and modest demeanor of this truly noble and gallant hero while his praises were proclaimed in the church of araceli in his exaltation he wished all christendom to unite in canticles of praise and gratitude to the most high he wrote to monsignor coniglia who was at that time his agent in rome on october twenty fourth fifteen seventy one on the occasion of this great victory granted to us by the grace of god i cannot help letting you know how great is our hope and our desire that his holiness will proclaim a jubilee in order that the faithful may unite in thanksgiving to god for so glorious a victory End of chapter 14